We're going to look at the first five verses. I'm entitling this passage, chapter 22, False Accusations. In chapter 22, beginning in verse 1, we read, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable to God, though he who is wise may be profitable to himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? Or is it gain to him that you make your ways blameless? Is it because of your fear of him that he corrects you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end? Eliphaz is going to speak for the third time. He has spoken In chapter 4 and in chapter 5 and chapter 15 and in this chapter. Remember Job's suffering and Job's pain and Job's circumstances no longer now an opportunity to minister and try to help someone who's in big trouble. It's sort of turned into kind of a trial. And in broad sweeping terms, Job is accused of being a sinner in verses 1 through 11, of hiding his sins in verses 12 through 20. And therefore, Eliphaz is going to urge Job, do the right thing, confess your sins, repent of your sins in verses 21 through 30. And one Bible writer has said, it's a great message, again, for the wrong person. It's wonderful medicine, but for the wrong patient. Eliphaz will accuse Job of pride in verses 2 and then again in verse 5, of self-righteousness and arrogance in verse 3. And then Eliphaz will bring out the laundry list of sins, including cheating on the poor in verse 6, oppressing the poor in verse 7, mistreating widows and orphans in verse 9. And if you don't remember, or if you weren't with us when we were studying Eliphaz at the beginning, remember this is the guy who sort of evaluates things based on his own personal experience. Remember, this is the guy who had that night vision. He had that strange dream in chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. And remember, because he bases much of his thinking on his personal experience, because he bases much of his thinking on a sort of subjective, mystical way of looking at things, he is like every friend who has ever said to you, you know, the God that I believe in says this, or I believe in a God who does this or that. And maybe you yourself have even said that where you talked about a God, not the God of the Bible and not the God of Revelation or not the the God that's represented in the Bible, but a kind of a God that sort of mysteriously formed impressions as you began to try and think about what kind of a God is God. Have you ever known someone who seemed targeted for suffering? 
This is not your normal person who just experiences a normal loss or a minor setback or a difficulty. We all experience loss. We all experience problems, pain, sorrow, health issues. I mean the the person who seems to live under a constant, persistent, dark cloud. I'm talking about the person whose address is 1313 Calamity Lane. They live in Catastrophe, Colorado. And you look at them. And you go, I know that we live in a broken world. And I, I know we live in a fallen world, but... It's hard for me to understand how one person could have so much pain and so much sorrow and so many problems. And so it makes perfect sense that we would search our hearts and it would make perfect sense that we would try to comfort them. It makes perfect sense that we would try to point them to the God who reveals himself. And remember, remember, Eliphaz thinks he thinks he thinks he's doing Job a favor. He pauses and he asks Job. Job, have you taken a good, long, hard look at your own personal wickedness? In verses 1 through 20. Maybe it's time to repent. Verses 13 through 20. I know what you're thinking. They all seem to be saying the same message. And by the way, at the end of this chapter, Eliphaz is going to give again... A great message, a soul-stirring, stimulating message with amazing questions, incredible observations, impacting application. And I'm somewhat sympathetic, at least in this sense. Every preacher wants to give the right message to the right person. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? Comfort for the person who needs comfort. A little rebuke for the person who maybe has wandered down a path in a wrong direction. You want to give the right message to the right person. But the way that Eliphaz begins his message is by stimulating guilt. He'll catalog a list of possible sins. And he'll make blatant accusations And this is what's problematic. If accusation is proof of guilt, then Job is guilty. But let me ask you something. Does that make sense to you that just simply accusing someone of something, does that necessarily make it true? By the way, in your own experience, you've probably had two kinds of experiences. People who have accused you things of things you have really done... And things that you haven't done. When you're accused of things that you really have done, it might generate a little bit of guilt. But when you're accused of things that you never really ever did, does it produce guilt inside of you? Or sorrow? Or maybe anger? Or frustration? Because you want so much for the people to understand what's going on. Look what it says in verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable to God though he is wise? May he be profitable to himself. It's his way of saying, 
What do human beings have to offer God? Can a man be profitable to God? Is there anything that God, looking down on the planet, could say, Wow, I'm really entertained by that movie. Oh, wow, that's something, that's a present that I could use for the rest of my life. Wow, that's something that I never knew or I, I, I could never ever have thought of um, on my own. Can a human being's righteousness have some kind of effect on God? The big question, of course, can a person's goodness or badness substantially change the character, identity, and attributes of God? Eliphaz wants you and expects you to answer, well, no. And in verse 3 it says, is, is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? Or is it gain to him that you make your ways blameless? It's Eliphaz's way of saying, Job, you present yourself as a good person, as a righteous person, as a person who knows God, loves God, walks with God, worships God. Do you think it's helping your case to pretend that you're righteous? Verse 4, is it because of your fear of him that he corrects you and enters into judgment with you? The NIV translates this, Is it for your piety or your sense of holiness that he, God, rebukes you and brings charges against you? One of two things is happening here. This is either, again, an accusation or a sarcastic dig. Does Eliphaz mean that God doesn't need anything from you and so that when you continue to call yourself good or you continue to call yourself righteous, you continue to call yourself blameless, does it really, really matter? In verse 5, is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end? He expects the answer in verse 4 to be no. And he expects the answer in verse 5 to be, yes, is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without wit? He expects Job to go, well, yeah. Now, remember what we've already learned about Job and in this book. Job has cried out to God to tell God, Lord, Things are happening that I don't understand. Things are taking place that I have no understanding. Could you please help me understand what's going on? In chapter 10, verse 2. Chapter 13, verse 23. And Eliphaz seems to miss the point that Job, Job has desperately, desperately been trying to make. Look, why does God send the punishment Before he arrests me, before he reads me the charges or the indictment, before he conducts the trial, it doesn't just seem to make sense to punish me for reasons that I can't comprehend or understand. It's like if you disciplined a child and you just walked up to him and you just slapped him on the face and, and you said to the child, do you know why I slapped you? And the child says, no. Well, you can't come out of your room till you can figure it out. Well, see, we're laughing at the absurdity of such a thing. 
as if somehow the child can read your mind or doesn't really understand what's happening. With God's silence, Eliphaz gives himself permission. Job, you've cried out to God. Why is this happening to me? God hasn't answered you. So guess what? I'm going to give you the answer. Again, how helpful is that to you? When you have painful problems or difficult issues, you've prayed, you've stayed up at night, you, before you go to bed, Lord, help me understand what's happening. Lord, help me understand this. Or Lord, give me wisdom and insight on that. And your husband or your wife rolls over and says, I'll tell you why it's happening. I'll give you the answer right now. Elihu's answer is, or Eliphaz's answer is, you're getting what you deserve. You see, remember, Eliphaz believes, not that Job is innocent, he believes that God punishes the wicked. He believes that God rewards the righteous. Nothing personal, Job, but you're just getting what you deserve. In in Eliphaz's theology, God is out there. God is righteous. God is holy. God is good. But he's not close. He's distant. The God that Eliphaz believes in isn't necessarily a friend of the wicked or the sinner. God likes people who likes him, and he hates people who don't like him. Now, here's the idea. There are people who claim to know and love Jesus who hold the same position. Well, you know, God loves you if you love him, and he hates you if you hate him. But we discover something different. Not just in the book of Job... But in every book in the Bible. You see, every book in the Bible, you begin to discover something. Even if you've read the first two chapters of of the book of Job, is the God of Job distant, a judge, and no friend of sinners? Does the God of Job look at Job, see Job, consider Job? Does the God of Job, is the God of Job interested and concerned about Job? Does God care about Job? What's the the right answer? Yeah, the, the right answer is yes. Remember Jesus himself. He said that God, the God who occupies heaven and and earth, the God who occupies eternity, the God who is really out there, knows everything about you. He, he knows the number of hairs on your head. I know that's not such a difficult thing for some of you. But he talks about sparrows falling down to the earth. And the whole point becomes that he's not just way out there, unconcerned, disconnected. We learn that God is pleased with Job's upright life. We understand that Job is in the midst of a test. 
And, and Job is starting to believe that. Job is starting to understand, hey, something's happening right here. Job believes that, that something is happening. He's being tested for his faith, not for his sin. And sometimes it's difficult for you and me to, to differentiate between the two. We sometimes think, is God punishing me for something that I've done? Or testing me for something that he wants me to do? You're going like this, going, yeah, yes. As you look for an explanation of what's going on in your own life, you go, Lord, is this a punishment for something that I've done? Or is this a test in order to reveal something about myself? Here's the quick question. Does Job's character and conduct matter to God? What's the right answer? Yeah. Is it okay for you to ask the next question? Does my character and my conduct matter to God? Yeah, that's the right answer. And so we have to ask the question about our lives, about honoring or dishonoring the Lord or the Bible seems to have a repeated message that he looks at you. And your life is doing one of two things. It's bringing joy or it's bringing sorrow. Every mom, every dad who's ever had any child knows that there are chapters in a child's life where they bring us joy. And there are chapters in their life when they bring us sorrow. If you're an earthly person with an earthly love for your earthly children, do you get rid of your children because the times of sorrow outweigh the times of joy? And remember what it says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, when Jesus was being baptized, the testimony of God concerning Jesus was, Hey, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's not the description of a distant God unconcerned about what's going on. Does God reward or punish in some sort of kind of cosmic karma, unfeeling, disinterested, detached? In the world of Eliphaz, God doesn't allow tests of faith. Because in his worldview and in his theology, righteous people can't suffer for no apparent reason. And just in case. Eliphaz is thinking. Okay one of two things is true here. Either God is unjust. Which is impossible. Or Job is unrighteous. Which one does Eliphaz go with? That Job is unrighteous. You see Eliphaz has this theory about God. But his theory doesn't match the facts and the circumstances of Job's life. And you may have friends and family and people who you come in regular contact with who have theories about God. They might even invite you to hear their theory. You know, I have a theory about God, they'll tell you. Tell me about your theory about God. There is no God. Or he's disinterested or disconnected. Or 
He sees everything that you do and it doesn't matter. It doesn't doesn't concern him at all. And now, Eliphaz is going to come up with a laundry list of possible sins. Look at verse 6. We're going to go all the way to verse 11. It says, For you have taken pledges from your brother for no reason. Stripped the naked of their clothing. You have not given the weary water to drink. You have withheld bread from the hungry, but the mighty man possessed the land, and the honorable man dwelt in in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the strength of the fatherless was crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden fear troubles you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and an abundance of water covers you. That's an idiomatic expression, which means you're drowning. In verse 8, actually, In verse 6 when it says, For you have taken pledges from your brother for no reason and stripped the naked of their clothing. In the ancient world, people would buy and sell. They would enter into debt. And sometimes when you would enter into debt in the ancient world, you would pawn things. In other words, you could take something that was valuable in exchange for something that was valuable. And so in the ancient world, you could pawn your clothes. Remember, people didn't have coals, and they didn't have Target, and they didn't have wherever else it is that the men's warehouse, wherever it is you go get your clothes. They didn't have 20 pairs of underwear or 50 pants or 300 pairs of shoes. They usually had an outward cloak and an inward cloak. In the ancient world... You could take this cloak and you could offer it as, as something valuable in exchange. And by the way, long, long after the book of Job was, was written, the book of Exodus was written. And in chapter 22, verses 25 through 27, remember part of the giving of the law was it became illegal to keep a person's outer garment overnight. In other words, when you're dealing with poor people, when you're dealing with people in trouble, you couldn't take undue advantage of them. And so Eliphaz is accusing Job of exploiting the poor. He's accusing him of injustice and inhuman treatment of those who are impoverished and destitute. He says it in verse 7, you have not given the weary water to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. You have to understand, in the ancient world of the Middle East, if you're living in the middle of the desert, and it's 20 miles to the next place where you could actually get water, it became a a type of grave offense to withhold water. I mean, just think of the basic standards of decency. If, If someone was broken down on the side of the road and you discovered that they hadn't eaten or drinking anything in days, what would you do? Would you figure out a way to have compassion? The decent thing to do is to try to help them. And Eliphaz is accusing Job of great sins, of serious offenses. Eliphaz doesn't accuse Job of lying or cheating or stealing, but rather of abusing his position of power and wealth. 
In verse 8 he says, but the mighty man possessed the land and the honorable man dwelt in it. He's talking about Job, who was the mighty man. You have sent widows away empty and the strength of the fatherless was crushed. In every culture, in every society, there are two great categories of people. People who are powerful, people who are self-sufficient. And in in the other category, there are people who are vulnerable. People who can be taken advantage of. And the widow and the fatherless were without protection. And they were vulnerable. Widows and orphans, according to the Bible, attract the attention of God. God looks at the widow and the orphan. God looks at the vulnerable and the people who are, who are taken advantage of. And he cares about them. The reoccurring theme and the reoccurring message of the Bible is God cares about the poor. The big question isn't that Eliphaz says this. The big question has to be, why would he say such a thing? How is it possible that God got Job so completely wrong? Oh, by the way, do you think God got Job completely wrong? Does God believe that Job is righteous. Yeah, he does. Does he believe that out of all of the miserable human beings on the planet earth, that there's none like him? You see, this is the point. Could Job be guilty of these sins and God still find him blameless? I doubt it. So Eliphaz says something that isn't true. It's a libel. It's a slander. In the Jewish Talmud, it says, the slanderous tongue kills three. The slandered, the slanderer, and him who listens to the slander. Defamation damages a person's name or a reputation or standing. By the way, do we live in a culture and society where if you say something about someone and it's not true, it's not true. Can you be held liable? Under certain circumstances, you can. In our culture and society, if you are what's called a public figure, all bets are off. If you're a public figure, it doesn't matter. People can say the most amazingly horrible things about you, and it doesn't matter. But if you're a regular person, living a regular life, trying to have a regular income, Does your reputation, does your name, does your standing, are these things that are valuable about you, important about you, and worth protecting? That's what defamation does. It damages a person's name or reputation. And that's exactly what Eliphaz is doing. Now remember the logic of Eliphaz. God punishes the wicked. Job is being punished. Therefore, Job is wicked. Based on Job's enormous suffering, Job must be really wicked. And so he begins to make up stuff. Eliphaz, like some of his partners, is on a sin fishing expedition. In verse 10 and 11, therefore snares are all around you and sudden fear troubles you or darkness so that you cannot see and an abundance of water covers you. There's traps all around you. Fear troubles you. There's problems on the outside. There's problems on the inside. 
You're drowning. So by the way, after all of these accusations, he makes all of these accusations, but does he offer any evidence or does he offer any proof? No. There's no evidence. There's no proof. You see, here's here's what the accusation is rooted and grounded in. Bad theology. A wrong view of God. And so, Eliphaz goes one step further. He accuses Job of pretending that God doesn't see what's going on. In verse 12, is not God in the height of heaven and see the highest stars, how lofty they are? And you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Now, again, we don't find Job actually saying that. Does Job really, really believe, again, that God is removed from human affairs, unable to see, unable to know, unable to judge the actions of the righteous and wicked? Nothing in the text would leave us to believe that. But Eliphaz asserts asserts that God knows about Job's wicked ways and that Job doesn't really think that God is saying everything. And so now Eliphaz is accusing Job of hypocrisy. He believes that Job is a hypocrite. He says, thick clouds cover him so that he cannot see. And he walks above the circle of heaven. Just a quick note. The idea being, look as far as you can into the sky. Or look as far as you can at the stars. And imagine that you could see a thousand miles further, a million miles further, a billion miles further. And you keep imagining, imagining, imagining a universe that goes on and on and on. And when it says, and he walks above the circle of heaven, the picture is of a fairly large universe. Eliphaz invites Job to look up. He says, I want you to look up and understand that there's no place for you to run. There's no place for you to hide. There's no place where you can escape God's scrutiny. And by the way, Even in the ancient days, hypocrites would comfort themselves with the hope that in the dark, no one's looking, no one sees, no one's taking note. You can press some sort of delete button and all of your activity will go away. You see, Eliphaz doesn't just simply counsel Job to look up. But he says, again, standard, standard preaching material. Look up. Look around. Verse 15 and 16. Will you keep to the old which wicked men have trod who were cut down before their time, whose foundations were swept away like a flood in the passage? He's saying, I want you to look up and think that God is watching. I want you to look around. And then he says, I need you to understand. Don't you understand that the wicked That their road of rebellion and their road of disobedience always catches up with you. In a sense, Job, in a sense, Eliphaz is answering the question, well, what happens to people who don't think God is watching? What happens to people who don't think that God doesn't care? Well, it's like the godless before the flood in verse 16 whose foundations were swept away by a flood. He's giving a kind of an illustration from history. Of a time when the world grew worse and worse. More and more difficult. 
And that in the midst of that disobedience and rebellion, God took them and destroyed them. Did God give them a warning? Yes, he did. I'm thinking about that movie that's coming out, Noah. And I'm constantly wondering, what is this movie going to do? How is it going to represent Noah? Is, is Noah going to be seen as a sort of extreme survivalist who's struggling for Greenpeace, trying to save the, the animal life on the planet, and that God is just a mean guy up in heaven, and he can't wait to kill everyone? Or is Job going to be represent, or excuse me, is Noah going to be represented as a person who loves God, who finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, who's given an opportunity to provide a mechanism of hope and redemption? In Eliphaz's world, he's saying, look, just like the godless were destroyed before the flood, that's what's going to happen to the wicked. In verse 17 and 18, he said, they, they said to God, depart from us. What can the Almighty do to them? Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. In other words, here's Eliphaz. He said, they said to God, depart from us. We don't want to have anything to do with you, God. What can Al- the Almighty do to them? Yet he filled their houses with good things. Now think about what, what Eliphaz is saying just for a moment. People didn't want God. And even though people didn't want God, God was still kind to them. Do you know what he's basically talking about? He's talking about a thing that's called common grace. Remember elsewhere in the Bible it says, does the sun come up and shine on the righteous and the unrighteous alike? Is there a God who orchestrates the heavens and the earth? Do the cycles of rain and storms and sowing and reaping and food, do good people get to drink water and eat food and evil people get to drink water and eat? Drink water and you understand where I'm going with it. So clearly Eliphaz wants to be able to assert that sometimes God is patient. That's good theology. That in spite of rebellion and disobedience, there are pockets of prosperity. That's good theology. Eliphaz believes that Job's previous wealth was evidence of God's kindness and not Job's righteousness. And that's not good theology because it's based on something that he has no way of knowing. He's assuming... That everything good that happened to Job, that Job had nothing to do with it. Is it true that God blesses people for reasons that we don't always understand? I think the answer is yes. Is it true that God will sometimes withhold blessings from you and me for reasons we don't understand? Yeah. Eliphaz wants to be able to assert that God blesses the righteous and punishes the wicked, but now he wants to assert that God blesses the hypocrite and the wicked in their prosperity. 
So at least he's starting to think about where he's going with his own thoughts. In verses 19 and 20, he says, The righteous see it and are glad, and the innocent laugh at them. Surely our adversaries are cut down, and the fire consumes their remnant. The righteous see what and are glad? The inconsistent way that God works? And the innocent laugh at them? Who? Laugh at who? Surely our adversaries are cut down and the fire consumes their remnant. The whole point that he's trying to make in part is that no matter what other people think, God is going to act and then God is going to do what God wants to do. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, The tragedy of hypocrisy is not that God sends judgment, but that hypocrisy brings our own judgment. That's, that's a wonderful line. I'm going to repeat it. Wiersbe writes, The tragedy of hypocrisy is not that God sends judgment, but that hypocrisy brings its own judgment. It destroys character. And when character is gone, when the salt has lost its flavor, like Matthew 5.13, what does a a person have left? The reason why this becomes important for you and for me is remember what Eliphaz is accusing Job. He's accusing him of being a hypocrite. He's accusing him of whatever measure of righteous he may have had, he no longer has. Wearsby writes, It has been said that the highest reward for a faithful life is not what you get for it, but what you become by it. Bishop Brooke Westcott said, quote, Great occasions do not make heroes or cowards. They simply unveil them to the eyes of men silently and imperceptibly. As we wake or sleep, we grow strong or we grow weak. And at last, some crisis shows us what we've become. Does a crisis determine who you are or does it just simply reveal who you are. And so then Elihu or Eliphaz he concludes with this magnificent sermon. So much so I wish I could preach it someday. I'm going to give you the short version right now. In verses 21 through 30 I'm just going to read it really quickly and then we're going to come back to it. For what does he care about his household after him? When the number of his... Chapter 22. I'm in the wrong chapter. Chapter 22. Verse 21. Now acquaint yourself with him. And be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive, please, instruction from his mouth. And lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. You will remove iniquity far from your tents. Then you will lay your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks. Yes, the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. And then you will have your delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You'll make your prayer to him. He will hear you. 
and you will pay your vows. You will declare a thing and it will be established for you. So light will shine on your ways when they cast you down and you say exaltation will come. Then he will save the humble person. He will even deliver one who is innocent. Yes, he will be delivered by the purity of your hands. Here's Eliphaz. He's pleading with Job. If you'll just confess that you're a sinner, if you'll just return to God, if you'll just do what's right. Remember, it's what I said to you earlier. It's great medicine. But it's the wrong patient. Eliphaz lays out the essential steps of repentance. Submit to God, verse 21. Listen and obey God's word, verse 22. Return to the Lord, verse 23. Abandon and forsake sin in your home at the end of verse 23. Depart from greed and lust for money and possessions and materialism in verse 24. Wow, that's, that's really good. In the Bible, repentance always involves a change of mind and a desire to do good instead of a desire to do evil. Is repentance the right message For some people, it is. Is it true that if you submit to God? Is it true that if you listen and obey God's word? Is it true that if you return to the Lord? is, Is it true that if you abandon and forsake sin in your home? Is it true that if you depart from greed and money and possessions, that good things are going to result? I think that the answer is yes. In the Bible, repentance is always a change of mind. It's not just simply a desire to do good instead of a desire to do evil. Repentance involves a change of mind and a change of heart. It talks about changing your attitude about sin. Instead of loving sin, we love the Lord. The psalmist wrote, Oh, how I love your law in Psalm 119 verse 97. And so the change isn't limited to just an act of the will, but this supernatural conviction and empowering presence of a Holy Spirit who comes upon a person and gives them a new heart and a new spirit, like it says in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 31. When we come to Christ, when we're born again, when we experience the new birth, when our sins are cleansed and the Spirit comes inside of us and our affections and attentions turn from those things of unhealthy preoccupation and we begin to fill our hearts and our lives and our attitudes with the things of God, we, we begin to understand something. We're given a new nature. We've been become partakers of the divine nature in 2 Peter chapter 1. We understand and believe that it's God who wills and works inside of us to change the way we feel and to change the way we think. In other words, we as Christians believe that that not just simply acknowledging the truth of Jesus, of his life, his death, and his resurrection, we as Christians believe that a real God who really cares about us will come inside of us and change us. And so when he says in verse 21, now acquaint yourself with him and be at peace, thereby good will come to you. It's an invitation to submit to God. And by the way, 
when you acquaint yourself with him, what does that mean? How do you acquaint yourself with him? How do you get to know him? Doesn't it seem to make perfect sense to you that whatever it means to know God, it has to mean stop fighting him? Doesn't it seem to mean that you put down your objections and you put down the adversarial role and you you accept his terms for peace? Now remember... For Eliphaz, he may be thinking, in order for you to have peace with God, in order for you to be acquainted with him and have peace with him, you have to believe about him the way I believe about him. He rewards the righteous. He punishes the wicked. By the way, is that true by and large? Yes, But is there more to the story? And I think that that's the right answer. There is so much more. And if I were to say, what is that so much more? Now acquaint yourself with him. Jesus said, learn of me. Make yourself familiar with me. I'm meek and humble. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. When you come to Jesus, do you get an accurate understanding of the nature and the character of God? I think that the answer is yes. Receive, he says in verse 22, please instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. Listen and obey him. Verse 23, if you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. You will remove iniquity far from your tents. That means the place where you live. What does it mean to return to the Lord? God will restore them, verse 23. He will make himself precious to them in verse 24. Then you will lay your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks. It's his way of saying, guess what? You don't need money anymore. Because money isn't going to be the thing that drives you. It's not going to be the thing that defines you. It's not going to be the thing that determines your affections. By the way, just as a side note, scholars are divided over Ophir. Apparently, this is a place where there's lots of loot. South Arabia, East Africa, maybe India. I don't know. Verse 25, yes, the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will have your delight in the Almighty and you'll lift your face to God You will make your prayer to him and he will hear you and you will pay your vows. Here in verse 27 when he says you will make your prayer to him, the idea is right now, Job, you're crying, 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 crying. That there's lots and lots and lots of words and very, very little conversation. And he says, for then you will have your delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. That means unashamed. You will make your prayer to him and he will hear you and you will pay your vows. In what sense? That whatever promises you made, you'll keep those promises. You'll also declare a thing and it will be established for you. So light will shine on your ways. So quickly, what's true about this? Well, 
What does God promise to those who repent and return to him? God will restore them, verse 23. God will make himself precious to them, verse 25. God will make himself their delight and their pleasure, verse 26. God will answer their prayers and give strength to do his will, verse 27. God will provide direction and light, verse 28. God will restore fellowship and make it possible not only for you to be used by God, but so now God will use you to minister to others. You will also declare a thing and it will be established for you. So light will shine on your ways. The idea being, you'll get to help people. Just like you've been helped. When they cast you down and you say, exaltation will come. Then he will save the humble person. Barnes writes about this quote. The Almighty would, make, would be his defense. He would find happiness in God. You're my defender. I put my hope in you. His prayer would be heard. Light would shine on his ways. When others were humbled, he would be exalted. Verse 30. Yet he will even deliver one who is not innocent. Yes, he will be delivered by the purity of your hands. The idea being... You'll minister to people. You'll encourage them. You'll remind them that they can turn from their sin. That they can turn from God. That they can walk away from a lifestyle of wickedness and evil and disobedience. And they can embrace a lifestyle of love and truth. This is great medicine. It's just the wrong patient. Chuck Swindoll describes Job's response. I want you just to imagine, just for a moment, that you're Job. And you've heard that speech. How are you going to prepare your response? What will you say? For those of you who are familiar with chapter 23, you already have a cheat sheet in front of you. But for those of you who don't, or you're unfamiliar with chapter 23, I just want you to reflect just for a moment on what you might say. Chuck Swindoll describes Job's response as grace under pressure. He writes, quote, those three words, grace, under pressure, could be written across every page in the book of Job. Grace, under pressure. Through, though loss bankrupted him, the death of his ten children grieved him, disease ravaged him, his alleged friends criticized and berated him, Job will courageously patiently endure, unquote. And you know what's really interesting to me? In spite of all of these things, Job will he'll come to a place where he's willing and able to intercede for all of these people, for Eliphaz, 
for all of the people who've made all of these strange accusations. Job is going to come to a place where he prays to God and he offers to God an opportunity for all of the painful and hurtful and terrible things that have been said about him to experience forgiveness in Job chapter 42, verse 8. Just in case you want to sneak ahead and say, oh, look what's going to happen. There's a long laundry list of reasons why people suffer. But one of the reasons we rarely appeal to, why is this happening? Why is this horrible, painful, and terrible thing happening? And part of the answer that's going to be given is that Job is suffering in part in order to make the devil shut up. Have you ever thought about that? Satan has accused Job, just like Satan accuses some of you. And sometimes painful circumstances happen in our life, and God allows us to be tested. Not to make a point necessarily even with you, but to make a point with Satan, to make him shut up up. You might think, well, that sounds silly to me. Why do we even care? Because remember what I said? Accusations fall into two categories. Things you've really done and things that you haven't really done. You don't have to worry about false accusations. But what about the accusations that are true? What about the ones where you have fallen short? Where you've been less than what you could have been? Then all of a sudden, like Job, Jesus stands and he intercedes for us. He prays for us. He encourages us. And he invites God to look at his righteousness as your righteousness. Jesus prays a very simple prayer. When you look at him or her, look at him or her as if you would look at me. Are you happy with me? Are you satisfied with me? Are you completely pleased with me, remember the voice from heaven? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then all of a sudden, the devil's mouth closes. The accusations cease. And we have the opportunity to walk in humility and love Because God isn't just a distant God waiting for you to trip up. But he is a loving and compassionate God who has done everything, everything, everything. So that you could experience intimacy. Fellowship. Relationship with him. We're going to have communion in just a moment. But what I want you to do is uh, 
save the elements until we all have an opportunity to partake together. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that um, accusations take two forms, true and false. Lord, we know that sometimes even our own conscience, just like it says in the book of Romans, will accuse us or excuse us. And Heavenly Father, you've given us permission that even if our heart condemns us, that you're greater than our heart. That the love that Jesus has and the forgiveness that Jesus offers and the ministry that he embraces, that, Lord, you are faithful. Just like the Apostle John said, if we confess our sin, he is faithful, and he is just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, and Lord, we know that sometimes we stumble. Sometimes we find ourselves in difficulty and even in disobedience. And that you offer a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to repent and return. And Lord, for the person who's been walking in humility and obedience, the prayer isn't of just simply repentance and return, but rather of ongoing friendship and fellowship, rejoicing in communion, of intimacy. That, Lord, we have an unhindered access to your love, to your grace. That, Lord, we can with confidence talk about the promise that's been extended to us. That you would be with us and that you would walk with us in life's difficult journey. And so, again, Lord, I pray for, for these men and women, Lord. I just pray that by your Holy Spirit you will speak to their heart and their circumstance. Lord, I pray that they would take a brief moment and examine their hearts and see what their spiritual condition is. And then again, in humility and grace, offer their hearts afresh to you. And so, Lord, prepare our hearts. Wash us and cleanse us. Thank you for your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.